0: Welcome to the Explore Words, Discover World podcast, presented by Bradford Literature Festival. What does it mean to be a feminist right now? In
1: this episode, you can hear a series of short inspirational talks from our panel on what being a feminist means to them. Recorded live at the 2023
0: Bradford Literature Festival, we welcome Leila Abulila, Rachel Louise Snyder, Florence Schekter, Anita Sethi and Rosie Willoughby to our panel.
1: Thank you very much. And yes, I'm Rosie Wilby, a comedian, author and podcaster. And I'm the author of this book, The Breakup Monologues, which is a sort of uh, feminist, inclusive take on breakups, a quite optimistic take on breakups, which was inspired when I got dumped by email. Although I did feel much better once I'd corrected her spelling. (laughs) And I do want to thank Bradford Literary Festival because seven years ago I was here presenting a pilot version of a chat show that has gone on to become an award-winning podcast and now this book um, so they were really part of the the beginning of this journey for me so and it's also quite interesting in the book I note that the very first live recording we attempted to do here seven years ago was lost forever because we had to move venue at the last minute due to a swarm of bees Mm-hmm. So, yeah, but no, no bees here today, I don't think. They're not following me around. Um, instead, we have five wonderful speakers who are going to talk about their relationship to feminism. And we're going to keep those a tiny bit shorter than we had originally planned because, Rachel, you thought we should all maybe have a bit more of a conversation afterwards and give you the chance to ask some questions and engage with us. So So we'll hear short talks from each of these five wonderful people and then we will have time for a little bit of a chat and some questions from you. So, what could be better on a Sunday afternoon when the, it's raining outside? Are you ready? Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> let me first introduce, uh, furthest away from me, Leila Abulayla. Her sixth novel, River Spirit, was published in March and described by the New York Times as dazzling a novel of war, love, faith, womanhood, and crucially, the Tussle Over Truth and Public Narratives. Layla's previous novels are Bird Summons, The Kindness of Enemies, The Translator, Minaret and Lyrics, Ali, fiction winner of the Scottish Book Awards. Her short story collection, Elsewhere, Home, won the Saltire Fiction Book of the Year. Please welcome Layla. <laughs> My mother was a
2: professional uh, demographer and the dean of a college. Often she worked from home. However, she never had a study or even a desk at home. She wrote her academic papers on the dining table and kept her books in a huge cupboard in the bathroom. While she worked, she would look up and see us playing, glimpse the cook in the kitchen, and watch the front door. It never occurred to any one of us, as well as guests who dropped by, that she must not be disturbed. The understanding was that we, her family, came first, and her work was secondary. The understanding was that she was accessible, and her work could be interrupted at whim. She did not have her own space. My grandmother abandoned her education when she got married. This was not by choice, but more out of a sense of obligation, the assumption that this was the expected thing to do in, the, in 1940. She was in medical school, and giving up the dream of becoming a doctor was a loss that she mourned throughout her life. She poured her ambitions into her, onto her sons, who both became doctors, one of them very reluctantly. My grandmother never held a job or pursued a career. She rarely went out and never on her own. She did not know how to drive. Instead, my grandmother had an inner world, a world in which reading was essential, in which gaining knowledge was a reason for life. My, mother wrote, my grandmother wrote with a notebook on her lap. She wrote about the life of the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi sallam gleaned from reliable biographies. She filled notebooks with the tafsir, the exegesis of the Qur'an, written by Ibn Kathir. She would do the household first thing in the morning, even the cooking, even the salad. That was her exact wording, even the salad. She would get all that out of the way and then start reading. I learned this from her, not to cook first thing in the morning, but that housework was something to be done without fuss not worth talking about or dwelling on. Housework was something to get out of the way so that I could do what was more important to me, and that was reading and writing. My grandmother was in awe of life. It was as if Allah Almighty had created the world in a code that she could read, scroll through its mysteries and surprises, the astonishing ways people behaved, their stories and intrigues. All this she did from her mission control center, not many rooms, a strip of a garden, the few times she went out for walks. I remember her sitting hunched in her chair, which was angled towards the Kaaba, reciting from the big open Quran on her lap. I remember her broad mind and her enlightened opinions, our interests simpler, her voice in my ear giving thanks for it all. My mother's life was very different. In the 1970s, she traveled alone to London to study for a PhD. She found her own way to the Friday prayers that were held at the Regent's Park Mosque. The mosque was still under construction, and she prayed in a makeshift tent. For the first time in her life, she heard an imam speaking in English. This delighted her, and when she came to Khartoum in the holidays, she told us all about it, mimicking his heavy accent and making us laugh. In the 1970s, Islam in Britain was still in its infancy, and yet she was a witness to it, part of it in some way. My mother was ahead of her time. She insisted on working even though she did not financially need to. She became more educated than my father and worked in academia. She rose to become a dean of a college. She was one of the first women and the the few who drove cars. She even went on Hajj alone, not once but several times. My mother was and still is as she recently turned 80, afraid of no one. She taught me a very valuable lesson that caring about what people think of you is a total waste of time. Unlike my grandmother and mother, I have had a study and a desk to myself for almost 30 years and five house moves. Six novels, two collections of short stories, some radio plays. I write undisturbed, surrounded by my books. The books I love and those that I have needed are within reach, and my own books too. Novels and short stories that I could not have written without the space and free time without the assertion that I did not want to be disturbed. My study is not a welcoming place. There is no other seat than the one I am using. It is a selfish place that states that I am unavailable except when strictly necessary. I am not out of reach, but I might as well be. Neither my grandmother nor my mother had a room of their own, but I do, and I am deeply grateful for this privilege. Thank you for listening.
1: Thank you so much, Leila. Well, I think there are one or two familiar faces I recognize from yesterday's discussion I had with the wonderful Florence Schechter, and she is up next, and she is the director and founder of the Vagina Museum you know what that is probably hear about it her background is in science communication and she has a degree in biochemistry from the university of birmingham since it opened in 2019 in camden market the vagina museum has been covered in international news from the new york times to the lancet to time magazine to even appearing in a joke in snl's weekend update her debut book v an empowering celebration of the vulva and vagina is out now please welcome florence
0: Thank you so much, Rosie. Um, I am being super millennial and reading my uh, words off an iPad. Got to keep with the times. <laughs> so bear with me one second. There we go. Okay, I'm in. Fantastic. In 1923, suffragists Alice Paul and Crystal Eastman wrote, a, pro- wrote a proposed amendment to the American Constitution and it was in- introduced to Congress. The Equal Rights Amendment, or the ERA, was a proposed amendment to outlaw discrimination on the basis of sex. It wasn't until the 1960s when it started to gain traction, however, with the rise of second-wave feminists like Betty Friedan, Shirley Chisholm, uh, Gloria Steinman, and Bella Abzug. There was a conservative backlash, however, so strong, that to this day, this amendment has still not been passed. One of the key figures in killing the ERA was a woman called Phyllis Schlafly, Schlafly was a conservative lawyer and Republican. She died in 2016, and until her dying breath, campaigned not just against feminist efforts like the ERA, but also gay marriage, immigration, and was forcefully pro-military. There's a fantastic TV show about her involvement in killing the ERA called Mrs. America, where she's played by Kate Blanchett, which, um, for a queer woman, was a very masochistic viewing experience. A big part of her arguments against the ERA was that the laws of America at the time were very economically beneficial to married women, and the ERA would get rid of those financial protections. In many states, husbands had a legal obligation to provide for their wives and children, and the ERA would wipe that out because it would be considered a discriminatory law to have men provide, but women not have that same obligation. In In the October 1974 edition of her newsletter, The Phyllis Schlafly Report, Uh, which she used to kind of empowse these views and try and beat the ERA, she published this comic, which hopefully will come on the screen. There we go. So uh, as you can see, there's a man who's holding 50% of the financial burden, down from 100%, and behind him is his wife, who is now also carrying 50% of the financial burden, but she's also carrying the crying baby and the broom, and she's also behind him and wearing a skirt and heels. (laughs) And Phyllis Schlafly had a fucking point. (laughs) Now, before you cancel me, (laughs) I do not categorically agree with her views. But she was immensely successful in blocking the ERA because she understood something, that the second-wave feminists of the time, who predominantly were white and middle-class, like Betty Friedan, were reluctant to admit affected women's lives as much as the patriarchy. Capitalism. She knew that if wives took more employment in practice, this would not translate to the husband taking on more house labor or childcare. S- this would still be the women's domain. Second wave feminists tried to make strategies to guard against this by like, rewriting marriage pr- contracts that divided up the household chores, but they didn't really take off. How many women around this room have experienced this themselves or saw their parents like this, where their mum had two jobs instead of one? Me too. I grew up in the 90s where there was a big discussion of, can women have it all, as a response to this second wave feminist obsession of getting women to, into employment without having that same pressure on men to take up labor in the home. Now, of course, the entire argument that women's emancipation is dependent on getting women into jobs is the most middle-class thing I've ever heard. Because women have had jobs since the dawn of civilization. Which one's idled at home? the wealthy ones. The working class women had to have jobs if they were going to feed their families. And the thing is as the middle class and middle class women's problems is really only a thing that started to exist in a significant way around the time of industrialization. Because before that, there were really only two significant classes, the nobility and the proletariat. And the women in the proletariat were very skilled and very employed. Men worked from home mostly, Farmers, smiths, carpenters, they would literally work out of their own home. And their wives and their daughters would be key parts of the business. They would also work work alongside their husbands and fathers, engaging in that same trade, and sometimes even going to start off businesses of their own. But the Industrial Revolution completely changed the fabric of society in a way that I believe is as significant as the Internet has. One of the ways was the change in where people lived and worked. The population became urban, moved into cities, and men, instead of working from home, now left the home to go work into factories to mass produce. And this created a problem, because someone had to look after the kids at home. And so, the way that poor women worked completely changed. They didn't stop working, but the way they work changed. And the creation of the middle class and the bourgeoisie created a new possible path for women without paid employment, but as caretaker of the household doing unpaid labor now. And in turn, this changed the very definition of what a woman is and her role. Friedrich Engels was one of the most important figures in the history of socialism, close collaborator of Karl Marx, He came from a family of factory owners in Prussia, and when he was 22, he was sent to work in the offices of one of the family factories in Manchester. And rather than following in his father's bourgeoisie footsteps, the horrors of what he saw in that factory radicalized him. In 1884, he published The Origin of the Family, Private Property and the State. Building on anthropological research at the time, which take it with a pinch of salt, but still, um, on indigenous communities in North America that were much less misogynistic than the ones he'd experienced in the West. He developed a theory that it was the privatization of public property that led to the oppression of women, the creation of the nuclear family, and the gender roles that lie within it. He theorized that when humanity lived more communally, when we were hunter-gatherers, gender equality came naturally. He thought that there probably were divisions. Uh, gender divisions of labor between hunting and gathering, but modern research has shown this may not necessarily have been the case. But women weren't oppressed in the same way that they are now, even with these gender divisions of labor. Resources and labor was shared, making it more efficient. Raising children and managing the home was a communal effort, which women led and were highly valued members of society for doing so. Engels theorized that before agriculture, humans weren't monogamous. (laughs) <laughs> Just, Is Monogamy Dead? is one of Rosie's other books. I did, That's way I looked, I feel like that was weird. We're like little Polly pals. Anyway, um, <laughs> humans weren't monogamous, uh, children parentage wasn't particularly important. But when we invented agriculture, everything changed. Because with agriculture comes the accumulation of wealth and the invention of private property. Because when we were hunter-gatherers, property was transient. You hunted, you gathered, you ate it, and you moved on to the next day. But now, we had grain stores, and somehow that has morphed into stocks and shares and Bitcoin. This This invention of agriculture necessitated moving from communal living to the creation of a small family unit to enable wealth to be passed down the generations. And this change in the way of living took women from being powerful members of the community to servants in the home. Men managing farms wanted to ensure that the accumulated wealth passed down to their own children. And suddenly, knowing who a child's father was became important where it wasn't before. And that led to many aspects of women's oppression that we still experience today, like slut-shaming, valu- valuing virginity and youth in an effort to ensure that babies definitely belonged to them. Agriculture was invented about 10,000 years ago, and most of us have probably been living with this kind of combo of the patriarchy and capitalism in some form ever since. But technology keeps changing our society, just as agricultural technology once did. Because I hate to agree, agree with Phyllis Schlafly once again, but she was absolutely right when she said that one of the greatest powers so far in the emancipation of women was, in fact, the invention of the microwave the invention of the Hoover, the invention of the fridge-freezer. Because reassigning labor just leads to someone else being oppressed instead of you. When wealthy women decided that they weren't going to stay home anymore and they were going to take on jobs, who is going to be looking after their children? It's going to be black women and Asian women and immigrant women and poor women, and they're going to be doing it for shit pay and no rights. So the solution to our economic problem cannot be Uh, cannot be rearranging the system so that some women are at the top alongside the men, pushing down the boot on the rest of us. We cannot reform a system into equality when that system was built to oppress. What we have to do is completely dismantle the system and rebuild it in a way that works for us. Because is the current economic system working for anyone here? (laughs) Who's worried about their mortgage? (laughs) Who's worried about their electricity bill? Uh, um, this This is not a currently successful economic system. How many women here had to give up work when they had children because childcare was so expensive, it was genuinely a better economic decision to stay home and look after your own children instead of paying for childcare? And who is this fucked system benefiting? It is benefiting the friends of our cabinet ministers, privatizing the NHS, and all we get is longer waiting times. It benefits Shell, burning up our planet so their shareholders can buy another fucking yacht. It's benefiting Dido Harding, getting billions to build us a test and trace system that didn't even fucking work. Dido Harding was a woman in the workplace though, such a leap for feminism that it was a woman stealing the public's money instead of a man. (laughs) And I'm not saying that it's hopeless or that we don't have an alternative solution. We can completely reimagine the economic system in a way that works for everyone and women, universal basic income. This is basically when benefits like job seekers and child benefit and pensions are completely eliminated and replaced with every single person in this country getting the minimum income needed to survive directly from the government. This money is raised through taxes. And just like income tax, the more you earn, the more you pay. And if you earn under a certain amount, you wouldn't even be taxed anything at all. It would all be carefully balanced in a way to make it a net zero policy. That way, the poor have a net gain and the wealthy have a net loss. It's a wealth redistribution method that prevents people from di- uh, prevents poor people from dying in poverty and prevents billionaires from having so much money they die on the Titanic a second time. <laughs> so, say the average rent for a one bed is a thousand. Pounds. I am from London. I have absolutely no idea of what is an appropriate amount to spend on housing. <laughs> um, and say bills are £300. That means every single person in this country gets £1,300 per month directly from the government, straight into the bank account, no questions asked. No means testing, no minimum jobs to apply for, no fit-for-work checks, and obviously there's like specific issues that would need to be debated, like children and should there be other benefits, but that's the idea. It's been trialled in countries around the world and it's been shown to be immensely successful. It doesn't just get people out of poverty and debt, but it boosts the local economy because people are spending that money by like, going to local restaurants and stuff. It also impo- improves health and well-being, it reduces crime. But to the point of feminism, it gives women freedom. Women don't have to stay in abusive marriages because they can't afford to raise their children alone. Women don't have to wait until they're 67 or older and older and older to retire. They can retire at an age that is convenient for them. Women don't have to accept exploitative jobs where they're sexually harassed just because they need to pay that electricity bill that has tripled in price. Women aren't forced to work when their period pains are so bad because they they can barely get out of bed because they don't have the right to sick leave. They don't have to plan their families around when their employment rights kick in, and men can have financial freedom to take time off work for parental leave. Women can start their own businesses and keep their own homes without having to rely on the whims of men or the wealthy. Rather than forcing women into work in the name of empowerment, or forcing them out of work because of patriarchal expectations or high childcare costs, we can completely emancipate women's liberty from their labor give us a chance to live without forcing us to make a living. All humans have a right to life, regardless of their economic output or reproductive capacity. Feminist equality cannot be achieved without dressing the other systems that oppress us. Classism, white supremacy, Islamophobia, ableism. We cannot fight single-issue fights because we don't live single-issue lives. So what lights my feminist fire? Fighting all the other struggles that stand alongside it. Thank
1: you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Florence. (laughs) Talking about the conflicted feelings of looking at Kate Blanchett playing uh, Phyllis Schlafly, (laughs) (laughs) I I was thinking about the really unfeminist way that I got into feminism—the feminist student newspaper at uni—and so I got involved, and that's how I got involved in comedy as well. Because Zoe Lyons, the comedian, had a crush on the same woman, and we kept bumping into each other. (laughs) (laughs) I kept saying, "Oh, Zoe, what are you doing hiding behind a bin?" Anyway, right, next up we have Anita Sethi who was born in Manchester where her love of nature first flourished in wild urban spaces. Her first book, I Belong Here, a journey along the backbone of Britain, received outstanding reviews and was nominated for the Wainwright Prize for Nature Writing, the Portico Prize, the Royal Society of Literature's Ondaatje Prize and Great Outdoors Award. Please welcome Anita.
3: Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for being here today. What lights my feminist fire? I'm going to be talking about walking as a woman, which is at the heart of my book, I Belong Here, um, a journey along the backbone of Britain. And I'm going to read out a few snippets interspersed throughout the book about walking as a woman, but also walking as a woman of color and all that entails. All my life, I felt like I didn't belong, and I grew used to that sense of unbelonging. Being an outsider has shaped my life in many ways and made me become a writer. But there comes a time when it's necessary to say, I belong here. It might come when someone is trying to push you from a place to eradicate you. It might come when your basic rights are being denied. It might come when you are struggling to breathe clean air, when you are struggling to breathe at all. It's exhausting having to prove and explain why we belong, yet so often have I had to do so on account of multiple macro and microaggressions. Ultimately, I hope for a world in which every creature, great and small, is accepted, and I don't have to say it at all. I was on a journey through Northern England and became the victim of a hate crime when a man attacked my right to belong here with words that hurt the very heart of me. The North is my home, having been born and bred in Manchester, The Trans-Pennine Express train even passed through the city on its route from Liverpool to Newcastle. The hate crime was a vicious attack on my right to exist in a place on account of my race. I was called Packy Cunt and told to get back on the banana boat and go back to where you're from. Yet this country is where I belong. Hate crime is on the rise in our hostile environment. After the attacks, some advised me to stop travelling alone due to the dangers, and I I experienced panic attacks and anxiety at the thought of travelling by myself. But I was intent on not letting a hate crime stop me moving about freely and without fear in a country where I belong. I was eager to continue travelling alone as a woman, asserting my right to exist. One day, I was looking at a map of the north, and there along the route of my train journey falls the Pennines, the backbone of England, with its nature reserves, national parks, and areas of outstanding natural beauty, an area of countryside designated for conservation due to its significant landscape value. My heart quickened as I looked at the miniature mappings of its mountains and rivers. The Trans-Pennine Express journey had run a route tantalizingly close to such Pennine areas, but it would take walking and local railways to fully explore it. I longed to journey through the natural landscapes of the North, transforming what began as an ugly experience of hate and exclusion into one offering hope and finding beauty after brutality. Go back to where you're from. This is where I'm from. I'm from the North, the glorious North. Our emotional connection with certain places runs deep and forceful as a river. And during and after the hate crime, I felt how profound my connection was with the North. Although a racist had told me to leave, I felt a magnetic pull drawing me back, not to get further from it, but even deeper into it. My journey is one of reclamation, a way of saying to adapt the Woody Guthrie song title, this land is my land too and I belong in the UK as a brown woman just as much as a white man does. Journeying through the so-called backbone of England also feels symbolic, a way of showing backbone myself and that I will not let having been the victim of a race hate crime curtail my movements through the world despite the trauma and panic attacks that followed. The man who racially abused me was arrested, charged, pleaded guilty and was convicted of a racially aggravated public order offence, using threatening, abusive, insulting words and behaviour. After I had heard my abuser had pleaded guilty, I felt the oxygen return to my lungs. But in the days and weeks that followed, I still experienced anxiety attacks, feeling the room closing in on me as my breathing became rapid and my heart pounded. I saw the man's face flash through my mind. I felt a crushing pain at the suggestion that I had no right to exist in a place that is my home, and my lowest steps, I wanted to cease existing. When I walked up through the carriages that the man had threatened to set fire to me, I had nightmares about choking on smoke. Sleeplessness left me exhausted. Even walking the streets of the city, I felt a sense of claustrophobia. As my fa- claustrophobia grew, I began to long for wide open spaces, to breathe freely in the great outdoors. I hungered for greenness. I began to devour more and more maps of the Pennines and plot out a route reading up about the Pennine Way, Britain's oldest long-distance footpath, which runs 431 kilometres through the backbone of Britain. I'll just flash forward a little bit. So I start off walking through Kinder Scout, where the uh Kinder Scout mass trespass happened, which led, yeah, some of you are nodding, it led to the formation of the, the Peak District in the Pennine. Um, the Pennine Way itself. And so I continue to walk through the Kinder Scout Moorland Plateau, following trig points used to measure the heights of mountains. I see butterflies, a brown angus, common blue, marbled white, red admirables, bright orange and black painted ladies, and small tortoise shells. I see creatures of many colours flutter by, oblivious to me. I relish being in the non-judgmental world of nature. I relish learning the new names of places and creatures, letting the, beauty, letting the beauty of them take the sting out of the abusive words I was called. I look out for rare wildlife like bilberry bumblebees, which started to return when the moorland began to come back to life. The world opens out and my sense of claustrophobia lifts as I breathe deeply. My anxiety no longer contracts the world to the size of a train carriage. Through walking and engaging with the world around me, my thoughts are shifted from anxious ruminations. Soon, I'm entirely alone in a field flowers. I lie down in the grass and begin to weep. I savor these moments being close to the earth, a part of it. I continue on the train to a place I'll be staying that evening. We will shortly be arriving at hope, says the train conductor. Then a little while later, this is hope. This is what hope feels like, acknowledging the existence of pain and panic, but pushing through it. Gazing out over the valley from on high, I look back over my life and at other times when I experienced abuse and either did not speak out about it or did report it but was not taken seriously, I realize how much hatred can be become self-loathing. Walking through the world, I feel those emotions shift and lift. Walking does wonders for my well-being and I walk until I can feel my limbs, the bones in my body, my heart beating, telling me I'm alive, I exist, and I begin to relish existing. I realize how much my anxiety has been about my sense of place in the world. I feel a defiance to those who would have me disappear, a desire to keep on forging a place for myself in the world. I think back to the situation on the train and how it was standing up from my seat and walking through the carriages that I'd been defining, following, followed by talking with the train manager to report what had happened. It had been standing up and speaking up. It had been walking and talking. I reported the hate crime as I wanted to do all I could to stop anyone else having to go through what I went through. In the days that followed, a desire grew in me to continue turning hope into action. I'm hungry to continue my journey through the North. I feel my mind open out as I look forward to walking through the forest of Bowland, rising up through the Yorkshire Dales and the North Pennines. You may kill me with your hatefulness, but still like air, I'll rise, wrote Maya Angelou. I want to continue rising, both geographically and emotionally. My journey is far from over. I will not be silent, I will not stop speaking out, and I will not stop walking through the world, my home. And I structured the book around the body. So um, it starts with a section called mouth, ends with a section called feet, and within it, a section called skin, then backbone, then lifeblood. And I did that to really get beneath the skin and show the lifeblood of which we're all made. So I'm gonna read, i on eight minutes. Do you want me to cut it short and leave it there? Just read out, I'll just read out a couple more. Yeah. So walking through the the world as a woman is obviously quite fraught, just given the the levels of harassment you face. And um, then speaking out, speaking about anything um, in the act of writing the book as well, was also fraught. So I'm going to read a little bit from Speaking Out. For years I felt my voice trapped within me like a caught bird beating its wings, my heart would flutter ferociously when I was called to speak on in class, the blood rushing to my head and draining from my fingertips. I would be on the verge of fainting and struggle to breathe as my voice caught within my throat. I can't quite pinpoint in the moment in teenagehood when I broke my silence. One day I felt my voice rise within me like a trapped bird soaring out. I know there can be a price for speaking out, being called outspoken, putting one's head above the parapet, rocking the boat. Literature, folktale, and mythology bear witness to a long history of silenced women. In Greek mythology, after Philomela was raped, she had her tongue cut out, so she could not speak of her traumatic experience. She later turned into a nightingale. As women, we have historically been conditioned to please and placate, to be meek and docile, not to speak out. In our contemporary age, women commentators and public figures are trolled, harassed, and gaslit, and victim-blamed. The fear of speaking out is understandable. Misogynistic stereotypes are often hurled at women who speak out, difficult, demanding, unkind, mouthy, lippy. More so to women of colour who face stereotypes of the angry brown woman or angry black woman, ad hominem attacks and character assassinations and even violence. Speaking out is not easy, it is always an act of courage. But there comes a time when it's even harder, more painful to stay silent. So my section, walking as a woman of color, really interrogates the term itself. Walking as a woman, walking as a woman of color. What does it even mean to be walking as a woman of color and a woman of color? So, on the Pennine Way, when I was walking the Pennine Way, I felt. And people often say, "Did you feel kind of vulnerable walking in the countryside?" And I say, "Well, nature itself doesn't judge me. A bird or a butterfly or a bee isn't going to judge me for having brown skin." So. I absolutely loved it when I actually got deep inside the countryside and could walk with no judgment. So, this is from the section, Walking as a Woman of Colour. Soon I see another sign for the Pennine Way, and I'm stepping into open fields, the village quickly falling away to leave countryside, completely empty of any other human being. My companion asked me how it feels to be a woman of colour walking through such a village as the one where I stick out like a sore brown thumb. The differences between our skin colours seem pronounced but I tell him I don't want to talk, that every calorie of energy needs to go into walking. As my shoulders strain, I wonder if I will end up writing how not to walk the Pennine Way. But then the uphill section flattens out into meadowland, filling my field of vision, a sheer beauty of greenness, many shades from the dark copse to the luminous green, the brightest green I have seen. At present, walking, working within the limits of language, I use the term woman of color to describe myself. I'm also a woman who loves color, Walking upon the skin of the earth, I drink up the sight of greenness, the colour created by chlorophyll, which captures the sun's rays and turns it into energy. I feel calm just looking at the colour. I also keep an eye out for other colours. Looking down, I notice bright hot spots of thistle growing out of the grass like beauty spots on the earth's skin and observe the protective prickles surrounding the purple. I consider the colours of creatures in the natural world, bright green, parakeets, Kingfisher blue, golden tigers, raven black. In such a context, you see how bullish color discrimination is. Does the purple thistle tease the grass about its greenness? Can you imagine a blade of grass having low self-esteem, being made to hate its color or shape? Despite being so literally trodden upon, it is so sure of itself, so confident in its skin. So my journey was one of reclamation, And one of the words I had to reclaim along the way was, of course, I was called Paki cunt. So I'm just going to read a very short one-minute extract um, from Walking Through Wilderness as a Woman of Colour. That will take me up to my allotted time. What is it like walking alone as a woman through the wilderness? I savour these moments alone as I press on along the sycamore tree-lined path by the swollen river listening to its strong wild power. I look down and see those moss-filled trees reflected in enormous puddles on the path. I savour being able to stop and linger whenever I wish, and do so to marvel at the moss and drink in its green glow. I try and navigate using the natural world, and moss is an excellent natural tool of navigation. It tends to grow on the north side, which is in the northern hemisphere shadier and damper. Moss grows and thrives on any surface moist enough, from trees and roots to rocks and concrete and cars. Moss is home to a world of microscopic organisms, which can't be seen but are crucial in ensuring biodiversity. Walking alone here without any other person in sight, wholly absorbed in watching the natural world, the sliver of fear I felt earlier to be alone slips away. After being racially abused, I was sent a personal alarm by victim support, a small sliver, silver rectangular shape, the second such alarm I've had, having been given a rape alarm age 13, and remember its high-pitched screeching. I was taught not to walk alone, even in broad daylight in areas where, if you were attacked and screamed for help, you would not be heard. So that ruled out natural landscapes and wildernesses. Oh, to be safe while walking. Oh, to be free of the misogynistic microaggressions experienced journeying through the world. Oh, for women to be considered as belonging out walking in the, wil- in the wilderness. On arriving in Malham, a man had looked at me and my male companion and said to me, Are you the support driver? The suggestion that a woman would be a mere accessory to a man's adventure rather than making an adventure herself infuriated me. The attack I experienced was misogynistic as well as racist, called paki-cunt, and I feel the intersectionality of being a woman of colour walking through the world. I can't reclaim the word paki without reclaiming cunt. My journey has become one of tracing not only the origins of people and places, but prose, for words define us. I remember learning swear words at an early age. I knew the word "cunt" was loaded, including being loaded with shame, and wondered why we should feel ashamed about something that was part of our bodies. Reclaiming language can help eradicate deep-rooted shame, for language is a form of power, and subsequently affects how we take up space and our freedom to move through the world. Such shaming speaks of the fact that for far too long, women's bodies have been regarded as belonging to men, and reclaiming the word is a way of saying, I belong in my own body, and my body belongs to me. I can choose how I use my body and where I take it, how I move through the world. I'm going to stop there because I've got my allotted time, but I just wanted to end with a short um, phrase, a short um, extract from Maya Angelou who inspired my whole walking through the world. She said, You may shoot me with your words, you may cut me with your eyes, you may kill me with your hatefulness, but still, like air, I'll rise. Thank you. (laughs)
1: Next, we have Rachel Louise Snyder, who is an American journalist, writer, and professor. She covers domestic violence and previously worked as a foreign correspondent for the public radio program Marketplace, and also contributed to All Things Considered and This American Life. A story she reported for This American Life won an overseas press award, along with Ira Glass and Sarah Koenig. Her work has appeared in the New York Times, the New Yorker, the Washington Post, and Slate. Please welcome Rachel Louise Snyder.
4: Thank you. So, I'm going to talk just for a couple of minutes. Um, I'm going to tell you a story about a snake. But before I get to the story about the snake, I want to talk just about writing for one second, in particular, nonfiction writing. So, there's a, there's a well known essay- essayist in the United States named Philip Lopate. And one of the things Philip Lopate talks about in nonfiction writing is that you always have dual narration. And what he means by that is, you have the person who is living the story on the page, but you also have the narration of the of the author behind that person. It's especially true when you're writing. This is my, do I have my yeah my memoirs up here? Um, this has just came out in the U.K. or it's coming out soon. Women we buried, women we burned. Um, and I was very aware of that. Of course, if you're writing about your 10-year-old self or your 15-year-old self. There's the age you were when you were living that, but then there's also this sort of shadow narration going on. So I want you to just keep that little lesson about writing in the back of your mind as I tell you this story of a snake. Um, This story comes from my third book, which was called No Visible Bruises, What We Don't Know About Domestic Violence Can Kill Us. It's the one right before this one. Um, And it tells the story of a couple named Rocky and... uh, Michelle, oh my God, I blanked on her name. How many times have I said her name? So many. Um, And Rocky really controlled Michelle in ways that were really kept hidden from her family. He didn't allow her to have friends over because he thought that they would be a bad influence on their kids. He didn't want her to work outside the home because um, it it was her job to raise the kids and it was his job to take care of the family financially. And if she was working outside the home, then she was emasculating him. Um, He didn't allow her to wear makeup. He didn't want her to wear mini skirts because he would say, well, I don't want guys looking at you, it's for your own safety, right? So he really had this coercion going. He also really isolated her from her friends and family. Her family only lived a mile away. They lived in Montana, in the western part of the United States. Um, but gradually, the longer their their relationship and their marriage went on, the more um, Michelle was really isolated from her mother and her sisters. So, one evening, Michelle shows up at her mother's house. She's got her two kids, who are six and seven, and she says to her mother, please don't let Rocky take the kids. I'm going to go confront him, because I think he's having an affair. Now, nobody thinks that Rocky is having an affair. Even Michelle's mother doesn't think this, right? But her mother says, okay, I I promise I will not let him have the kids. Interestingly, in this moment, there is dual narration going on that Michelle's mother doesn't know. Because what Michelle is actually saying is, these kids have been used as leverage to control me. But, But Michelle doesn't have the language for that. And Michelle's mother doesn't have the knowledge to ask about that. So when Michelle says, don't let Rocky take these kids. There's all kinds of information in the background that is missed, right? And it's not their fault. Who would know this? Nobody would know this unless you were a journalist who wrote a book about domestic violence, somebody like me. So about an hour goes by and Michelle sees I mean, uh, uh, Sally sees Rocky pull up, and he's got this grimace on his face. And she goes, and she locks her front door, and she locks her back door. And she can hear him breaking into the back door. He unlocks it. He leaves blood all up and down the wall. And she throws her body on the two kids on the couch, and he just tosses her off. He's a really strong guy. Puts his daughter over his shoulder, and he's out the door. Michelle comes to her mother's house minutes later. She says, you know, he took Kirsty, didn't he? Yes, he took Kirsty, And so Michelle's mother convinces her to call the police. It's the one and only time in eight years of marriage that Michelle calls the police. And the police come, and they say, it's his daughter. What do you want us to charge him with? Michelle says, I don't know. Isn't that your job? Well, you know, he broke into his family member's house. Is that even really a break-in? So they write a shitty report that reflects this. They don't even get Miche- uh, Michelle's daughter's age, right? Kirsty's age, right? Um, and as they're leaving out the door, Michelle says, By the way, there's a snake in the house. And they're like, Ha ha, funny. And she goes, No, there's a rattlesnake in a cage in our house. Rocky had gone up to the hills of Billings, Montana, gotten a rattlesnake and kept it in a cage in the house and said to Michelle, if you do anything that makes me mad, I'm gonna put this snake in bed with you." So when you think about a law like coercive control, which you have passed here in the UK and also Ireland, um, what I want you to think about is the snake. There's a reason my third book is called No Visible Bruises. Because domestic violence does not have to be physical, domestic violence does not have to leave actual marks right. Michelle only called the police one time the next morning. she went to what we call the district attorney i'm not sure what what do they what do you call that here the d a p- p- prosecutor whatever sp- uh, you know someone in in juris the jurisprudence world. And she filed for an order of protection. She talked about the snake. She got an order of protection. As she was driving home, she gets a phone call from Rocky's mother. Oh, sweetheart, Rocky just called. He said he was arrested. That's how quick, right? He was arrested. He, He was home with his daughter. The police came, showed up, arrested him. Rocky says he's just been arrested. I'm so sorry. This is really terrible, what he's done this time. Um, we've bailed him out, but he promises he's not going to be a hassle. He just wants to talk to you. Mm. Mm-hmm. Michelle, what do you think she does? She turns her car around. She drives back to the DA's office. She storms into the DA's office and says, I want that order of protection dropped. I made it all up. There is no snake. Of course, there was a snake. I, as a journalist, have a picture of that snake. I have a video of that snake. Michelle Michelle lived for another two months. And then he killed her. And then he killed himself. And he also killed their two kids. So the thing I want to talk about, and I have a a much longer keynote that this is part of. But the thing I want to talk about is what systems are prioritizing an abuser's safety, uh, an abuser's freedom over a victim's safety. Are those your systems? When I talk about domestic violence, I'm talking about the story of homelessness. I'm talking about the story of gender inequality. I'm talking about uh, teen dating violence. I'm talking about trafficking and sexual assault. It all starts with domestic violence. As a writer, as a journalist, the foundation of my world is simple. It's, It's one very simple question. Who is benefiting and who is losing from the system I'm looking at? We need systemic changes. We need to know what the shadow narration is of our own systems. Thank you.
1: Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to support the festival, please subscribe, share this episode with others and leave a rating. Don't forget to mark your calendars as the Bradford Literature Festival returns for its 10th year from 28th of June to the 7th of July
4: 2024.